on a cinematic timeline directly between Stop or My Mom Will Shoot and Demolition Man, 1993's Cliffhanger exists at a time in which Stallone was finding himself again as an actor. He was no longer Rocky, he's no longer Rambo, and much like his character of Walker in Cliffhanger, he's looking for a purpose again. At the helm of this ridiculous juggernaut is the absurdly fun Finnish action director Rennie Harlan. And as is his trademark style, he tries to do a little too much at the same time and yet dares you to look away. It's a heist movie, it's a terrorist movie, it's a rock climbing movie, but more than that, it's still uniquely a Stallone movie. And that ultimately is what keeps me coming back for more throughout Sly's career. My unabashed, shameless love for any and all things Sylvester Stallone. So strap on some carabiners, dial up some extra blood squib packs, and join us as we get Totally Extreme Dude on tonight's episode of Midnight Flicks. To Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late-night purgatory. I am one of your hosts, Pat Mitchell, and joining me on this cinematic expedition is Adam Walker. Adam, how are you tonight? Hey, I'm doing all right. All right, all, all right. right. You were telling me that you were smashing some T-Bell before we hopped on the, hopped on the blower here. It was post-workout uh, mealtime. <laughs> and... I I was particularly excited that Taco Bell was agreed upon between myself and my girlfriend. I don't try and eat Taco Bell a lot, 
but when the time comes, I'm always ready. I was about to ask, do you guys have to be on, obviously you have to be on the same page to get T-Bell, but is it a rare, is it a special occasion when they when the both are? Okay. It's a treat. It's a rare treat. I would say no more than a couple times a month. One thing that I'll have to mention about Seattle is it's fairly bereft of Taco Bells. There's, oh. Yeah, there's none. There's one in our immediate area. They closed oh, them all. Jesus. Yeah. So you 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 kind of have to go out of your way. To... Well, that makes it even more of a special occasion. Absolutely. I was just gonna say that if my wife ever suggested or I ever suggested, the other one's just always fucking down. <laughs> so it's just want to get Taco Bell, yeah. So, but we still don't eat there as often as I'd like, which is seven times a week. <laughs> yeah, I I came around to Taco Bell again more as I got older. I don't, no more hate. Stop no. the hate. Of the fast food chains, it is easily easily the best and my easiest go to. Um, just just. Not even close, really, but absolutely. Uh, There's no competition. No. Have did you watch any? Uh, I watched something interesting this weekend. I didn't know if you watched any good movies this weekend. So in the past week or so since we talked last, I have seen a couple new things that had been on my radar. Uh, okay. I'll just briefly touch upon them. Yeah. The first was a movie that I've known about for quite some time. Been meaning to tick it off, but it's the movie Wild Zero. Are you familiar with this? Yes, yes, I am. I yes. haven't seen it in a in a coon's age. Yeah, I've never seen it. The Guitar Wolf, zombie, alien, action, comedy, whatnot. Yes, and I was and I was quite entertained. There was definitely some aspects of it that I don't know. Again, if you know, we can relate this to, to any sort of cultural approach to those sort of movies that made it a, different. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, but the concept was cool and there was, there was actually some very like forward thinking aspects to the dialogue that was, you know, really cool to me for being a late nineties movie. And so overall I enjoyed it quite a bit. I'll say that much about it, and I recommend it. Uh, and aside from that, the other thing that I watched was a documentary called "Shut Up, Little Man," which I did see that. It's the it's the neighbor. It, they're like neighbors, and Raymond um, and Peter documentary. Yeah. Are they neighbors or are they roommates? They were so they were roommates, and the story behind that I've known about Raymond and Peter for a long time, for over twenty years, and I just never had seen a documentary. But the story behind that is Raymond and Peter were these two older gentlemen that lived in San Francisco together in this tiny little apartment. And these two younger punk guys moved to San Francisco from Wisconsin and, and moved in next to them. Unbeknownst, unbeknownst to them, they had just moved next door to these kind of violent drunks. And they quickly found out that their neighbors were insane and they started and recording them. They started recording them, and their neighbors even kind of knew it. They were in on it. They just was like, whatever, fuck it. <laughs> these dudes kept recording these inter these interactions, these the soap opera that these two guys were having together, 
and they turned it into uh they they started taping tape duplicating these conversations and it kind of made its way into the tape underground and it became this like crazy phenomenon like found sound uh you know audio verite type of thing that led to all kinds of other things like a like a super rare zine or like a yeah like it was a super sought after like almost like the jerky boys or some shit. Yes. hundred percent in that line. Prank phone call kind of culture, uh, Longmont potion castle. Yeah. Yeah. Absurdist yeah, yeah. sort of underground thing. Yeah. And it was, it was a good documentary. It was, it was, it was funny. It's fantastic. I also have not seen it in a long time, but I, when you said the title, I, I'll never forget that title because it's what he shouts at the other one, right? What? Shut up, little man. Yeah, shut up, little man. Shut up, little man. <laughs> <laughs> also, aside from that, one of my favorite lines that I will never forget from those audio recordings was something akin to uh, Peter says to Raymond, I made a perfectly good dinner tonight and you crucified it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's so, great so, so yeah, I gotta so, go back and watch that again yeah so that, that were, those were two things that I watched recently that were pretty good that's awesome I saw um, 1917 in theaters and it was uh, just one of the best movies of I hate these fucking Oscar movies that are like so it's up for best picture but like it got like released to the it got released everywhere like January 10th, so it's like a 2020 movie. Um, but that that is up for a 2019 consideration anyway. Um, Sam Mendes, who who is known for American Beauty or whatever, but um, has since gone on to direct Skyfall, which is quite easily the best James Bond movie ever made, um, and. This movie specifically is shot in that gimmicky, like one shot, like one continuous shot that's unbroken and unedited outside of like a handful of camera tricks that, that kind of breaks up that action. Uh, it is, it is fantastic. It's just relentless. Like you just follow these two dudes as they're trying to like deliver a message, um, uh, to the to another British infantry to not advance because uh, the Germans have set up a trap. It's just, it's just like, and I don't like, I'm not like super into war movies because I, I get confused on like who's dying. I'm like, wait, is that so-and-so? Like everyone looks the same. Everyone's like dying. I'd never know what the hell's going on. This is like not confusing. It's like very, very like simple to follow and like cinematically just gorgeous he knocked it out of the park it's great that's that's great yeah i i've kind of checked in on that movie and i will say after vietnam related movies because i do like vietnam related movies my next my next category that i like in terms of move uh those type of movies is world war one and I was about to say, this is the first uh, and only World War One movie. I'm, I, I, World War One. I, I know, know like nothing about in general. And this was like awesome to to just see a piece of history that I 
was not familiar with whatsoever. Yeah, World War One was a particularly brutal move. Uh, yeah, yeah, particularly brutal war, and that's why it kind of fascinates me. And it was, it was the first war where this advancement in machinery and high-powered weaponry was used yeah. to incur way more violence and damage and casualties than had ever been experienced. Like mustard gas it Prior was to that. A, like a it was like the advent of mustard gas was mm-hmm. during World War 1, right? Yeah, I believe People so. Were just like absolutely decimated by it. <laughs> but yeah, but like high-powered cannons, I think that's when tanks first started appearing. So, yeah, it's a huge it's, jump in war technology from World War One and any, and anything that came before it. Yes. And now. also it was the first international conflict of yeah. nature. On that scale. On that scale. So it, it, it just it devastated so many countries. And, and there's just there's lots of gnarly bits in that he throws in 1917 because there's not there's actually not a lot of like battle conflict because it's mainly about delivering this message and going into no man's land and and trying to get uh, the message there. But they're like crawling over these like rapidly decaying bodies that are just piled up everywhere. They're, it's gnarly. It's so good. It's just so good. There's like rats and shit just like crawling over everything. It just looks like a post-apocalyptic uh, nightmare world. Which it was. <laughs> which it was. Which, which it was. So speaking of post-apocalyptic uh, nightmare worlds, <laughs> yeah. shall we get into the movie of the night? Yeah. You want to give the synopsis? Yeah. Let's Let's go with that. So... I tried to boil this down. It, as I mentioned in the monologue, Rennie Harlan's always trying to do so goddamn much. Right. <laughs> He's always got so much going on. And God bless his heart. I actually, I love Rennie Harlan. The basic premise, I would say, there's a ragtag group of criminals led by John Lithgow's character, um, who plays Quaylen. Uh, who hijack a U.S. Treasury plane, um, and in an attempt to transfer the money f- mid-air from plane to plane, um, the plane crashes in the mountains, and uh, the hijackers uh, coerce a pair of professional rescue climbers, <laughs> who are played by Michael Rooker and uh, Sly Stallone, to assist them in finding the three lost suitcases that contain the money. Um, and they're, you know, coerced at gunpoint. Uh, and they have the three suitcases have tracking devices on them. Um, that is the, the general, um, anything to throw in there that I kind of glossed over. No, I believe that's it. And, and, I, we can go into this when we go into the, the good, the bad, and the questionable a little bit more. But I love the the simplicity of you don't really need to know much. Um, that is, that's what's going on, and that is the conflict that needs to be resolved. Um, even though he's doing a lot, uh, the basic conflict is stays stays the same throughout the movie. Um, 
So in terms of our our main man, uh, Danzig. <laughs> Did you find something? No. Okay. Damn it. I fucking, I fucking wish. I the I just the idea of Danzig sitting in a theater watching Cliffhanger, just I I can't even fucking handle such a, a fathomable thing. Him and Stallone are so alike just in build and height. Right. <laughs> yeah, but not I wouldn't say personality though. Sylvester no, Stallone. No, no. Just strictly <laughs> short men that are that are that are cut. Sylvester Stallone, from what I what I know, and this is what endears me so much to him, for all intents and purposes, seems like he's a pretty good dude. Yeah, I, I've, I've never heard of anything that that outs him as being, you know, no, and they're shittier and, than an, an, your average, you know, whatever yeah. rich white guy. <laughs> no, <does>. absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So no, Danzig, Danzig said nothing, but Ebert who we genuinely don't agree with a lot, liked the movie. Three out of four stars um, said, movies like this are machines for involving us and thrilling us. Cliffhanger is a fairly good machine. (laughs) But moreover than that, he has the most apt description. So I, I gave you a synopsis of what the movie is. He does it in literally one sentence. He says, it's a cross between the pursuit of D.B. Cooper and Alive. That is like the perfect description. It's literally a D.B. Cooper story with like the hijacking of a plane and escaping with a bunch of money. And then it turns into Alive, literally. It's literally those two things. I, I, when I read that, I was like so thrilled to uh, to like an, an Ebert quote. I, I couldn't even believe it. He was right on point with that. Yeah, I agree. When I read it, I was like, I can't knock the guy for this one. I feel like he he's speaking in the same... Yeah, he's he said the exact same thing that I would have said, more it, or less. It, it's perfect. So, in terms of the Ebert review, uh, two thumbs up <laughs> for, for just being uh, on point this time. Yeah. This time around. Hey, don't get used to that, though. Well, I think, it, you know, <laughs> I think it's actually because this isn't a horror movie. Right. That's uh, and that's what I was going to say. <laughs> Once we get more. Yeah. Every time we do a horror movie and we reference him, that's where we're going to run into him saying the things that I fucking hate. So he's on our good side uh, for temporarily. <laughs> <laughs> yes, temporarily. <laughs> so shall we get into uh, what we like to call the good, the bad, and the questionable. Let's do it. The good. Strong performances from both Lithgow and Stallone. Um, Stallone's not bringing this movie down uh, at all. Um, I like that he kind of plays it back a little bit. He's a little bit reserved uh, in the lead role. And Lithgow, maybe you can give me help on this timeline. 
this is 1993. Has he played a bad guy in anything? I, I'm just now thinking about this. So this was, and it would have been before Raisin Kane, because I assumed yeah. it was after. So it was okay. So, to the best of my knowledge, yes, this was his first performance as a villain. If this is his first go at it, um, it's fantastic. <laughs> Because I'm not sure what the perception of him is outside of, uh, well, I mean, I, so to go back, I guess we're both dummies because in Footloose, I guess he's the ultimate uh, asshole. I haven't liking. seen Footloose in so long that I, I can't say one way or the other about that. So he's the guy in Footloose who doesn't want any of the dancing. Yes. Now I, I mean, do remember I haven't that. watched I've never actually watched Footloose, but I know that he's like fucking anti-dancing. <laughs> so that makes him an asshole, apparently. But yeah, he's, any, he, he's your what would be portrayed as your typical conservative, probably religious, small town white guy with a giant stick up his ass that's probably secretly gay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which so in terms of bad guys it, that's that's an apt description mm -hmm. but in terms of what i'm i guess referring to this is like international uh criminal assassin <laughs> yes not like dude trying to uh prevent dancing from happen happening in a small town so different different levels i i suppose right um but both both of them I thought were strong, which which helps with with the final um, with the final fist fight between the two. Uh, if either performance was weak, uh, that wouldn't have paid off as much. Um, and speaking of which, another good that I had was there's not a lot of investment needed uh, for a pretty fun as hell payoff. It's simple to follow, and you can catch this movie at any point. And you would just be strapped in. Like if I watched, if I caught this in the middle, I'd be like, well, I, I'm watching this till the end. Um, and I will say to that, point. yes. And I will say to that, one of my goods to tie in is I felt when I watched this movie that I became more invested and, and got increasingly more sucked in as it went along. More so than previous viewings. What's that? More so than previous times you've seen it? Yes, and because I hadn't watched this in a long time either. So there's this era yeah, yeah. there's this era of action flicks that admittedly I will say I liked them at one point. I don't know if I return to them a lot, and that's why I'm glad that you picked this. I think that's why this is a good sort of, you know, format here, because you've you picked a couple movies already that I've liked in the past that I can't say that I return to a lot. So when I watch it this time, probably who knows, 25 years after the fact, whenever was the last time I saw it. I, there's a part of me because I'm also so I, I'm so biased towards horror. That's my lane, you know, and I don't, and, and it's funny as I get older, that's kind of my thing. I get more and more biased and invested in just being a horror expert, even though 
I've always been very omnivorous in terms of my <laughs> cinematic <laughs> intake. Yeah. But I do get to be a little bit more one track minded. So it's helps to break me out of that once in a while. Cause I need to do that. And then I realize, Oh, like I haven't watched these kind of movies in so long. There's good stuff here. Anyways, point being, I went into it being like, man, this might be kind of silly. We'll see how it goes. And it is silly, but there's definitely a point where I felt like, Oh shit, I'm all in on this. And it doesn't take a lot. Like the amount of money you put in to be invested is like what you're saying. Like, uh, I don't like, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm kind of questionable as to where this is going and if I give a shit. Um, but Rennie Harlan gives you just enough for you to be like, all right, I'm all the fuck, all the fuck the way in. <laughs> yeah, totally. You, you're like, this is tight. This yeah, is, this is, is everything you want in a big budget action popcorn type of movie. Literally, literally. And for and, me, I will say this, as much as I do love 80s action f- films up to the 90s, where a lot of it is the thematically, it's very jingoistic and very pro-US, whatever. Yeah. This movie, that was absent. There was an absence of that. There was none of this jingoistic rah-rah USA shit. It was, it was implied by having an international villain, I would say, versus, you know, the heroes being American. But it's not blatant. It's not outright. And yeah, and that, that guy that, even tries out a British accent. Right. So he tried. Yes, which I'm going to get to that later, but we'll we'll, we'll save it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so also good. Uh, I've taken great umbrage with the evil schemes in the last two episodes. <laughs> um, well, the evil scheme in Halloween three and uh and the yeah the scheme in running man where they they choose not to use the surveillance footage we we talked about how that's confusing and um so i've taken great umbrage with those two things i actually really like the heist sequence in this i love a good heist it doesn't dominate the movie um it's at the beginning and then it's over and then you don't get any more heist stuff but it's not only plausible, I, I feel like it wasn't absolutely ridiculous, um, which is nice, but it also serves as the glue of the film. If the high sequence was was completely fucking stupid, you would you couldn't literally not invest in this movie at all because the movie would be thusly ruined. But I actually really like the heist, uh, the heist idea of of a turncoat U.S. Treasury agent. <laughs> And uh, the hijacking, uh, the ridiculousness of the two planes. And even though Rennie Harlan is constantly pushing the ridiculousness over to the line, he never goes over to the point where you're like, well, I'm checked out now because like literally this could not happen on this planet. Like you're not completely checked out by any of his decision making. Well, I will say something about that. and. There is something I've noticed. I feel like this is a thing that happens. That the 90s, 90s action kind of movies. I guess the reason why this came to mind, I should state, is because I just recently re- rewatched Con Air. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. and that, that could I noticed, be on this uh, podcast at some point. Yes. 
definitely for sure. But I've noticed that there is a thing that happened in the nineties where these movies have these convoluted criminal plots. Sure. And I felt like this was an instance of that. It didn't make me dislike it for, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. It, in fact, it opened it up to this amazing action sequence, you know, that occurred with the heist and all the, the, the things that go wrong during that whole, that whole part. But that is a thing that definitely I feel comes up a lot is these overly complicated criminal plots that to me by their very nature, because they have so many steps involved are bound to go wrong. And that's the whole point. That's the whole, that's the jumping off point. That's the setup is yeah, it's crazy and convoluted and something's going to go wrong. And then when it does, the wacky hijinks ensue. Yeah. And that's what happened with this movie. And I think as compared to Con Air, the brevity of the of the heist lends itself to more plausibility. So since they don't they don't stretch out this, they don't show you any of the pre-heist stuff. They don't show you them preparing for it. And the heist isn't the whole movie. So the movie isn't just about this U.S. Treasury heist. The heist is just a 15-minute sequence that happens in the beginning of the movie just to set it up. So I liked that aspect because I, I didn't have to... I think the more you focus on it, like in Con Air, the more you can poke holes in it. But since it's just the heist that sets up the movie, I was just like, hell yeah, hell yeah. Oh, the FBI agent is uh, still alive? Okay, cool. Grab a fucking gun. Let's go. Oh, he's shooting. He's shooting the other plane. All right. Let's, I'm in. Like, I think because it was brief and not the encompassing the entire movie, the consequences of the heist are encompass the rest of the movie, but you're not poking holes in the heist itself because it's, it's over with by the time, you know, the bulk of the movie begins. Rennie Harlan's bloodlust. Uh, he just loves a good uh, blood squib. He just he. I I hate movies where people are getting shot, and and the only reason you would ever know they're getting shot is because they do like a uh, or like the, you know their head thro- is thrown back in like a, a JFK manner. Um, he is all in with just loading everybody up with blood squib packs and just exploding <laughs> those motherfuckers every time somebody gets like someone will get riddled with like 12 bullets. Yes. And it, the fight sequences in general are so violent that this, when this was released in the UK, they had to heavily edit two different scenes. Um, one of which was, the the Stallone getting getting the the shit beat out of him in the cave, um, and then um, also when uh, Michael Rooker is getting the shit beat out of him by the ex soccer player, yeah, by Delmar, <laughs> by Delmar, yeah, that one in particular was like too violent, so they had to like completely take those out. But I like that Rennie Harlan is is um, 
not afraid to to really go dig deep into some into some violence um especially when it's not even needed you'll just you'll just go that extra measure <laughs> yeah right i'm with you there i i definitely wanted to discuss those those particular scenes that you just mentioned when leon at the end of that cave fight scene gets impaled on the stalactite jesus absolutely brutal and yeah Again, that f- that fight scene be- uh, between Michael Rooker and Delmar, Michael Rooker's character, it, it was on par with that infamous slash famous fight scene in They Live that just keeps going and going and going. Now, that one, <laughs> that one, you're not wincing as much. This one, when I watched it, I was like, shit, like it just kept going and and he was getting the absolute fuck knocked out of him. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, it was so brutal to watch. It's so good. It's already Harlan too. He just, he, he reminds me similarly to Paul Verhoeven in, in just like, there's something about these European dudes coming over here and just being like, Oh, like I know how to do like a a big uh, cowboy shoot him up. Like, and just, riddle meat with bullets like they just love that shit and i respect verhoven and harlan for going unflinchingly with with that shit across the board yeah it gets super gonzo it's it's similar to how japanese you know the japanese will take aspects of american culture and just amplify it to 11 and it's cool it's the same thing here where it's like these guys in their mind, they think this is what Americans like, right? Yeah, a yeah. lot of violence, a lot of blood. <laughs> so, and in Verhoeven's case, he's doing it as a social commentary, more as Rennie Harlan has no commentary. Rennie Harlan just loves over the top action movies. Um, Verhoeven's actually has messages, he has a, a conscience about it, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, the last on my good list is uh, the score. Trevor Jones's score. Uh, he was coming right off the heels of Last of the Mohicans, so it is n- kind of nutter butter that he that he was doing such a uh, such an uh, um, Oscar jerk off movie as Last of the Mohicans, uh, <laughs> and then went straight to cliffhanger. Yeah. <laughs> to do, and actually, I, I read a thing that a review of the score and somebody said that he so blatantly rips off Last of the Mohicans. He just like basically takes Last of the Mohicans and like tweaks it a little bit for Cliffhanger. But he says that, but he actually, that was the only negative thing he said. He said, ultimately, though, it lends itself to the movie. And in the lulls, when there's not a lot of action, which for this movie, there's not that much of, it really carries you through uh, the action points with with to where it feels like it's nonstop, which is what a good score should do. Yes, right there with you on that one as well. That was another thing that I wrote down was his his score is amazing. It really fits the tone, hundred percent. Again, it adds, just drives it. It literally drives the whole movie. It, yeah. It's great. Adds it's, to yeah. that aspect of pulling you in and keeping you there. It follows along with these wide, grandiose shots of 
the mountains, which that's one thing that I was going to get into with my good was the cinematography of Alex Thompson is pretty breathtaking. Honestly, he really did a good job. It's a beautiful movie. It really is a gorgeously shot movie. It, 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 it sounds crazy, but it's breathtaking. It, like you said, it's, it sounds insane, but it is. Yeah. And, and again, to have that sort of juxtaposition with this violent, crazy, <laughs> kind of over the top action film to have a beautiful lush score, these beautiful sweeping shots of these, these mountains. It's yeah, it's, it was great. It's a good juxtaposition of uh, grotesque overviolence and like picturesque, uh, picturesque mountain views. It's so stupid. I, it really, but it it the movie's charming in that aspect where it's just like, um, it's like watching. It, it's like if you were to watch like two gorgeous women beat the living shit out of each other. <laughs> you'd be like, oh my, like, you'd be in awe of their beauty and also like, holy shit, like, (laughs) wincing at the amount of pain that they're going through as well. And there's a lot of that in in this. Do you have any other good? That's a great, I didn't even throw that on there, but I thought that the whole time, the cinematography, that's a good, that's a good good. That's a good good. Yeah, so other goods that I would mention... I thought the plane crash sequence was pretty fucking cool. I I was I watched it again. So I watched this twice. And I was in awe both times at how ridiculous. I I was trying to think sequencing wise how he shot this fucking thing. It literally looks like a plane crashes out of the goddamn sky. He he does it's it's flawless. It, the editing of it, you go from you go from it falling out of the fucking sky and then careening through the trees as the wings get clipped off. It's is fucking great. It's like a masterful. It's a masterfully shot uh, uh, plane crash scene. A top three plane crash scene easily. Yes. So that was one of mine. Michael Rooker. I love that guy. <laughs> talk about really. I feel like bringing it home with the supporting actor. Uh, position on this one. <laughs> there is nothing. I love Mike. I love Michael Rooker too, but that char- his character is in my bad. Just that okay. character. I, That's fine because I, I have some some bads that you thought were good. So we'll. We're, I think we're going to be a oh, little we'll, bit. We'll, we'll crisscross a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we're we're going to have a, a little bit of a, a disagreement on some things. We'll but, defend. We'll defend it to the death, or at least try. Yeah, but I I I love that guy. There's nothing that he's been in that I've ever thought sideways about his performance. And incidentally, my introduction to him was his performance in Henry, which I'm not sure if you've ever yes. seen Henry. Yeah. Brutal, all in. brutal movie. Just absolutely terrifying. Absolutely skin crawling. And that was the first time I ever saw him was in that movie. And from then on, I was on his, I was on his team and he's never disappointed me. And I didn't so um I didn't realize this until somewhat recently within the last couple of years. I had no idea that 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 is called Henry because of 
the Henry Lee Lucas story. I, only because I'm only somewhat familiar with Henry Lee Lucas uh, as of recently. I, I didn't delve deep into the Henry Otis Tool shit until um, I listened to that last podcast on the left episode yeah. about it. So I, I was not like super deep into Henry and Otis. And so when I heard the Henry Lee Lucas story, I made the connection of, uh, yeah, of that, of that movie. And obviously that it's called Henry portrait of serial killer and all that, but it, that, that made things click for me even more. That movie's fucking incredible though. Right. And just the fact that, I mean, this was pretty early into his career, so whatever, but I appreciated that he took a chance even that at that early stage on that sort of role, which is terrifying and uncomfortable. And I think for even like the most diehard died in the wool horror serial killer, sociopathic tendency type of people, myself being one of those <laughs> that even somewhat difficult to watch for me i was watching i was like uh but yeah so he, he he's always been my dude and so that was good for me otherwise i guess i have just a couple other things here that we didn't uh that we are that we didn't touch upon i should say and i wrote down Using dude as a sled. So there's a sequence <laughs> where. God damn it. Why did I not write that down? I, I I was watching the movie and I literally was like, holy shit, like that's got to go down on my notes. And then I, I think I was too stoked on writing a dude down a fucking, <laughs> a, basically a corpse. I mean, he was dying and or dead. Yes. Uh, yes. Good call. Holy shit. That and. One more thing, the cave of bats. That whole yeah. that whole scene. Another one of those just like the set pieces in this movie are um are incredible. You, you never feel like you're not like I know that it was shot it wasn't shot on location. I mean it's supposed to take place in the Colorado Rockies and this was shot in, in Italy in some mountain range that I, I can't pronounce. But yeah. Um you never feel like it, it all just feels so real. Like it, it never feels like a movie. Right. <laughs> Other than the, a lot of the ridiculousness, but the, the <laughs> but shooting of, of it. Yeah. The, the, the set, the set yeah, yeah. where, where it was taking place. That all, that all was real as fuck. Yeah. So bad, bad. <sighs> can I go Trevor, back? Can I, can I go back go ahead. around yeah, yeah. to a thing that you, you brought up? That yes. is in my bad ca- category. Yeah, of course. John Lithgow's accent. It's it, he dabbles. It, it, he should have just been told not to try it. So it's bad, but bad good because for me, it was almost straight up like a Snidely Whiplash cartoon villain take at and it at a, at an English accent. It's a very apt description. It, it, it's so. I don't know if it took you out of the movie, but or it doesn't sound like it did, but no. it didn't take me out of the movie. No, I definitely was like, all right, this is a little ham fisted in terms of like driving home 
Like, do they, do they, oh, does, does it always have to be a fucking foreigner? Like, <laughs> just fucking, but like this, God, just, yeah, this if effete, erudite, it, almost intellectual. Always. Yeah. Fucking always. Um, I agree. I agree with that. Yes, it was a bad accident. And it almost sounded like he was told to do it uh, the first day of shooting. Like, he almost <laughs> was like, he what didn't know it was going to be a British accent. And then you were like, Rennie Harlan was just like, ah, just do it like in a British accent. And right. He and he had like, never done an English accent. And he, and he was like, like fucking try. Um, Travers, the turncoat, uh, uh, the turncoat agent. Yeah. Um, him constantly, first of all, he's on 11. It, yes. Like, there's not a line that he's not screaming him constantly yelling, shut the fuck up and none of your fucking business and pistol whipping. Everybody is just gets like, it just gets grating. It's like, okay, we fucking get it. Like <laughs> it really does. And that was something I wrote down as well, where I wrote down, he's a fucking asshole. And if we're like, no good why reason. Is he, why is he the like <laughs> most pissed? Like, yeah. it's so unnecessarily strange. aggressive throughout the whole movie. <laughs> it, it it is it, it is so strange. It, it borders on comedic a lot for most of the movie. Yeah, I wrote uh, down Travers is a real hothead asshole. That's what I put. <laughs> yeah. That's true. 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 Um, and this is my bad. So it's it's. Uh, it's nothing against it's nothing against your boy, but Tucker literally getting everybody killed because he can't fucking play it cool for like five seconds. Those two, the two uh, the two extreme motherfuckers, uh, Evan and Brett, are literally killed. Well, one of them's killed; the other one barely survives. All because Tucker literally cannot just just play it cool and not blow the fucking cover of these clearly unhinged criminals yeah uh, not to mention when ranger frank lands the fucking helicopter he blows that cover too and gets him killed <laughs> yeah i can't believe the amount of times tucker got people killed in this movie and was expressly told to play it cool. And he just like, Michael Rooker, well, I don't want to say Michael Rooker. Tucker could not play it cool. Getting people killed. Uh, I, and this is three for three in terms of people being bad at their job. Uh, although I guess his job is technically rock climbing. But at the job of playing it cool, uh, Tucker fails that. Um, all <laughs> And I, I assume you wrote this down too. The rescue attempt at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> yeah, that. Well, the questionable bad definitely with just the whole premise that Tucker and his inexperienced rock climbing girlfriend were on this. Do you want to save that for questionable? Sure. So, yeah, we'll just leave that. But because I do have more questions than I am just, uh, than, than I just thought it was bad. I, I, I just have more. I'm just more. It's more questions than anything else. So we moved on to, well, I mentioned the rescue attempt at the beginning of the movie, and then we said we we're going to save that for questionable. Um, in fact, that's, I didn't come up with, with more bad than that. I mean, those were, those were objectionably the, the bad 
that I had. So what did you, what else did you have to add? So I had a few other things besides what I mentioned about Lithgow's accent. I was like, it's like, all right, dude. So this would be questionable bad. So, but I'll, I'll go into a, a little bit because this was another thing where I think I diverged from you a bit. Stallone's acting questionable for me. Okay. And I hear you. I know. But, that's, <laughs> but here's the thing. I really do love him as an actor for Rocky alone. He, to me, establishes himself as being a capable actor. Yeah. There's enough depth there that, yeah, that goes a long way. He's not, he's not, it's not like Schwarzenegger where you're like, okay, this guy, one trick pony. He doesn't have the chops, even though he's in enjoyable films. And I, and as an actor, I, I enjoy plenty of things he's been in. Absolutely. But as far as his actual craft, he's he's not very good. I felt like there were times where Stallone's acting was a little a little choppy, but not it's like the Lith, Lithgow's accent, but not even more not even so much as that where it's it wasn't distracting for me. There was never a point where I'm like, "Uh." But I think it, really what it came down to wasn't even the whole movie it was more in the beginning sequence, the the first act where he comes back and he's trying to redeem himself and reconcile with um, Janine Turner's character. And I felt like when he got, when he gets into those dramatic parts, those parts that require him sometimes to be a little bit more emotive. Sometimes there's some, there's, there's some hiccups in it, but, that that's the thing. I don't want to. I don't want to fully put that into the bad category. It's it's more kind of like, nah. I wasn't fully sold on his acting. It was so. a math performance for you. It, for me, yes. So, I and don't I think don't it's on like upper echelon of Stallone. But I think all he needed to do in in this was uh, was toe the line in terms of um, playing it right down the middle. I don't think he ever. It's a role that he could have dialed up a lot more. I like that he held back as much as as he did because it that character just did not need to be um, the the yell crying Stallone that we have in a lot of other movies. Sure, sure, and I appreciated that that was your take on it as well. So, other than that, bad for me. I felt a lot. I felt that everyone in this movie was a fucking idiot. <laughs> I really did. <laughs> Except for Stallone's character. Even Ranger Frank? <laughs> <laughs> he was just weird. He was just fucking weird. He was just a bizarre guy. But yes, everyone was a fucking idiot. Minus Gabe. I felt like Gabe. Gabe knew what was up. He knew how to get shit done. He He had a plan. So other than that, and this is not a value judgment by any means on the movie. What I would say is bad was when I watched it, I I would get genuinely anxious seeing some of those rock climbing sequences. And I, there was definitely times where I was like, "Ah." (laughs) I'm sure we were going to get to this eventually, but Stallone's body double 
died, uh, not making this movie, but died like two years later in a car accident or in production in a car accident. Yeah. I, you know, yeah, he obviously didn't die making this movie, but so Stallone did have a body double, but there's also moments in this movie. The reason I'm bringing up the body double is he did have one, but there's also points where like Stallone is in like perilous positions that like you can tell it's totally him and it's not like a green screen. Like they, I, this movie was nuts. Like Rennie Harlan should have killed like four people making this. Right. And we will definitely get into talking about the death defying aspects of this movie when we get into the, the, uh, the wiki wormhole trivia aspect of the it. The more I researched it, the more I really appreciated the movie more. And the so I watched it the first time, did all my research for it, then watched it a second time knowing all that shit. You're, it blows your brain. Like, because you watch it and you're like, holy shit. Like, it's so, you appreciate it so much more. 100%. I, I agree with you. When I was doing the research, it, it lent a whole whole nother level of appreciation to this movie Absolutely, what went into making it. So, so that's, that's all I've got. Questionable. I actually was, I, if this makes sense, I was hard pressed to come up with lots of questions because this is the type of the movie that you just turn your brain off for like 90 minutes and just enjoy the ride. You know, I read, I read people, God, I can't imagine what kind of insufferable fucking sycophant you'd have to be to complain about that the technical merits of the rock climbing wasn't logistically sound. <laughs> yeah. I don't give a fucking shit about any of the technical merits of the, of the rock climbing, not checking out to these fucking nerds. Um, but the questions I do have, at what point does hypothermia set in for Walker? <laughs> It, it right i'm right there with you that was one of mine as well if it wasn't climbing the scaling the tower i don't know if he was scaling the tower i'm pretty sure it was yeah um, in a t-shirt it was definitely when he falls in the in ice water ice. yeah yeah and then just hanging out underwater for a fairly good time a uh, good amount of time before uh blasting some bullets through it um yeah yeah, that and and not getting necessarily treated other than given a sweater. <laughs> <laughs> no, there is no fucking way that this dude wouldn't have died from hypothermia. He'd be dead. Walker would be dead. Um, the the gang, uh, the criminal gang to money ratio doesn't seem to be worth the trouble. Not There's at like all. Three fucking suitcases. We're told it's millions of dollars. Hundred million. Hundred okay, it's hundred million specific. Okay, hundred million. How many motherfuckers are in this gang? It's like six, seven. I mean, they're quickly uh, dispatched, but like, I'm not sticking around it. I'm definitely not like when. And this is why they don't show pre heist stuff because you know you're you're looking around at how many hands are in this pot, and you're like. Oh wait, we have to do a, a wired transfer, a physical wire transfer, plane to plane, mid air. Okay, yeah, cool. I'm down for like the fucking you know <laughs> amount of money I'm getting, and you know Lithgow's getting the most, so it's not like everyone's getting equitable shares here. Yeah, so th to that I will say, and it made me think of 
this scenario because I just listened to the rewatchables episode about the dark night where it, and they, it's similar to the whole heist scenario in the beginning of the dark night. And you, you know, you progressively find out that each one of the people involved in the heist are not, well, they're adversarial, but they're not, they're, they're unbeknownst to them. They're adversarial to each other. And that's the Joker's grand plan is, he's just going to have them murk each other until they're all done. And then he gets all the money. Yeah. I feel like it would be a similar sort of scenario with this, with this, you know, this high minded criminal mastermind like Lithgow, where he suckers these fools into doing this crazy heist when in the end, he's just going to get all the money. I buy that with dark Knight. I don't buy that with this. Cause it seems situational the way people are killed His quote unquote girlfriend, uh, is dispatched for the sole purposes of Lithgow being the only one uh, left that can uh, drive that or that can knows how to you know maneuver the helicopter. Yeah, um, yeah it doesn't seem like he didn't. It just doesn't seem like his character thought that far ahead in terms of well, we'll just it, also that what goes against that the Dark Knight heist makes sense that they would quickly dispatch each other because they're adversarial in nature. They weren't supposed to land in the mountains. Like this was supposed to be over with in the, in the plane to plane transfer. So in theory, if this went without a hitch, no one's dead. Like I, I don't buy that Lithgow would have, and I'm not saying you, you're, you're attesting to this, but I don't buy that Lithgow planned for everyone to die. Yeah, but, it was it was just a yeah, it's just me throwing out a scenario totally. as to why I'm glad you brought that up. Why there would be so many people involved to get this done when the relatively speaking, there may not be that big of a payoff. No, for not, them. Not at all. For their grunt work. You know, and they're forced into the situation once the plane crashes. So I get it. It's like, well, we might as well fucking get this money. But then as the suitcases start just like fucking disappearing then you're just like counting the amount of money that you're left with and it's slowly becomes not worth it um wouldn't a terrorist act on a uh on a plane that's a a u.s treasury plane that's transferring money this would be seen as a terrorist act wouldn't this be a greater threat to national security and not left up to two rock climbing rescue people <laughs> I know this is pre nine eleven. I get I get that, but this is literally a terrorist act on a U.S. Treasury plane with FBI agents and Secret Service agents, like all all that. Uh, it's a heist of that of on that level would uh, attract so much more attention than just the one helicopter that eventually figures out the plan and is is in route to help, but does nothing. So Stallone and, and Rooker are literally left to dispatch these terrorists. All, all on their own. All on their own. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is a huge question of why this wouldn't have raised more red flags uh, in the government. But. And, I, and I feel like that sort of plot hole also comes up again and again with a lot of these movies where, as you said, the ratio of response to the mayhem and carnage and, and level of terrorism and all these things that could happen is 
it's asymmetrical. They, they literally all of the local FBI uh, branches within a fucking fifty mile radius of the of the Colorado Rockies would be dispatched on all levels. It'd be fucking helicopters. It would be people in fucking just like driving jeeps up to the goddamn. It would be an all points bulletin, all hands on deck government situation. I mean, <laughs> it's not treated like that at all, um, which is just funny. But like you said, a lot of these 90s heist plane hijacking movies are treated in the same respect. Well, it's, it's like, well, we'll just let a fucking average Joe handle this shit. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And they do it with a plum. Um, that's all my questionable. What do you got? Questionable for me, and this relates to what you were just talking about with the hijacking of the plane. And I was able to do some research um, to kind of not to 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 not necessarily create this as being a plot hole sort of scenario. But and this is another thing that happens in action movies that happen on airplanes is the willy-nilly usage of firearms on an, uh, you know an in-flight plane i assumed would cause some sort of depressurization that would <laughs> that would be disastrous so but i wanted to check you know i'm 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 no Aero, aero, aero scientist or whatnot. I'm not an engineer, so diligence. So I looked, and in fact, that small bullet holes throughout the the carriage of a plane does not cause any sort of depressurization that would cause the plane to go down or any sort of you know injury to the passengers, unless this is the situation, unless a window is shot out, then you're fucked. So, but that's the thing. <laughs> there is the possibility that you're going to shoot out a window if you're shooting up a fucking plane. So are you saying that when, when the FBI agent literally shoots out the fucking cockpit window, they would have been uh, fucked instantly. would have been dead. They would have been fucked instantly. All of the oxygen would have been sucked out. They would have died in seconds. Yes. I'm not sure if Mythbusters ever did this movie, but I feel like there's a lot of myth busting that could go into this. For sure. And when I I just it was just some half ass internet research sort of thing. I looked up the the stuff you should know <laughs> uh take on it, and that's what Just it said. In case someone shot up a plane. <laughs> so that was a questionable for me. I kinda had a we were going to talk about the opening sequence. So I had some questions about that as far as wasn't there any sort of, didn't they have any other tactic that they could have utilized instantly to save Sarah? I think that's what her name was from we falling. Can, yeah, we, and we can get to that now. Well, so Rooker says, uh, and obviously they're going over one at a time because the rope won't support more than two people. Um, so the only saving grace of that scene is is that idea, and then Stallone just going full bore. At at first, I I put bad and questionable Stallone's plan to save her 
I'd seem nuts. But then I was thinking, what the fuck else are they going to do? I was trying to think of other ways that scene could have panned out. And my immediate reaction was that this was fucking insane and, and it's a questionable way to rescue them. But then I was thinking, one, you can question the way they, the way they rescued them seemed insane, that you would just have to traverse this fucking, like, that seems crazy. Uh, this mile high, you know, rock to rock, rock formation to rock formation, uh, rope thing. Um, that's questionable. But once the shit hits the fan, I'm not sure how you save her. I, I really, I'm not, I don't know. Not quickly enough, at least. So I was, I was misremembering exactly how they had created a reinforcement for the rope on the other side. Now, wasn't it, didn't they in fact reinforce the rope or, or somehow fix it into the mountain itself? It's fixed into the mountain itself, and then the helicopter uh, pulleys the rope to another to the other side, where it is affixed to what I would assume is the helicopter. Okay, and that's where I couldn't remember because I was thinking if the rope is fixed on both sides into the mountain into the rock, why couldn't the helicopter just lift off and save her somehow? So I was trying to think, I was trying to wrap my mind around that, but, but then I couldn't again, remember exactly if they were tying the rope on the other end to the helicopter. Then you're somehow. putting it in Ranger Frank's hands and I'm not sure anybody wants that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, point being that whole opening sequence, I was, I, well, how do you, so how do you save her? So you know that it's not load bearing for two people. And once that happens, uh, Stallone does the only logical thing, I even though it's crazy. Right. I mean, Stallone easily could have died because if that's not a load bearing for two people, the rope could have just snapped and they both would have fell. Yeah. So it's a death-defying rescue. But e- either way, just to back up from the logistics of it, what a badass opening sequence to an action movie. <laughs> No, it's super cool, and again, it sets the tone of <laughs> establishing that you're going to be super anxious seeing all these sequences and scenes up in the mountains and mountain climbing. And because when I watched that, it was from the get go. I'm like, ah, you know, just when she fell, it lo- it looked real as fuck. Like it it looked like somebody falling a great distance to their death. Yeah, it it was scary to watch it was it was and who said we didn't do a horror movie this week um there was there was there was frightening moments for sure throughout this for sure (laughs) i was Um, horrified mainly just the biggest horror being ranger frank uh anybody being in his hands in terms of needing assistance oh Uh, that brings me to one last questionable yeah speaking of ranger frank (laughs) his weird shitty banana painting what is going on with that? <laughs> yeah, no, that's questionable and bad. <laughs> so that's, I had, the, yeah, there's I no had art that. dealer on the fucking planet that that's being peddled to. <laughs> yeah, there's so I had, one. I had that. I would just throw Ranger Frank in the bad. Ranger Frank in the bad. Okay, just, just in general, just 
completely fucking useless. Throwing Fr- Ranger Frank under the bus completely. completely. He should have been. He should. Hey, it should have been Ranger Frank. Every time someone died, I was like, "Why? Why is Ranger Frank just still painting fucking bananas back at at the lodge?" And these people are dying for no reason. This this is our this is our take on the it should have been Lars trope that people use. It should have been yeah. It should have been Frank. It should have been Ranger Frank. You know, if Rook if Rooker dies, we riot. <laughs> but, but he didn't, so he we're didn't. good. He, he made it. Don't use my name, God damn it! Oh God damn it! Oh God damn it! God None of your fucking business. I'm getting real fucking tired of your threats. We're down a few hours before the whole fucking world shows up. Where the fuck is it? What the fuck is going on? Fuck. Fuck guy walker. A couple of fucking mountain rangers. And I'm finding that pretty fucking hilarious, Quaylen. Fucking dirtbag like you. Oh yeah, buddy. But more specifically, our award and category section, which we kick off with the quotes. Da, 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 da. What are some doozies that you came up with? There's only real one real winner here um, for me. <laughs> we'll set the tone. What is it for you? I just love those two X Games fucking idiots. (laughs) They're not in the movie very much. They really are bringing it. Um, I love his aversion to Stallone saying that he was working up in Denver. And one of the doofuses says, man, I hate work. Even when someone else is doing it. (laughs) That line is like defines that dumb dick loser generation. Those those goobers were another thing that that establishes this firmly as a '90s film. That that was a timestamp for this movie. Is oh the the goober slacker bros? Oh, uh, just extreme the extreme junkie bros. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not gonna go into this guy too much, or he doesn't come up again for any of my other categories. But the the one bro that ends up surviving. He's been in a, in a few other movies that I've actually liked, namely uh, Drugstore Cowboy, which I don't know if you've... Uh, I've never even heard of. Drugstore Cowboy is a Matt Dillon movie. It's fantastic. It's got William S. Burroughs in it. But he's in that as well. Yeah. but And then the one actress, I'm drawing a blank on her name, but she's also in Roadhouse. She's, she's the uh, main female lead in Roadhouse. But... Um, <clears throat> the the parachute surf or uh, snowboard bro that survives he plays a character in drugstore cowboy that ends up killing matt Dillon's character and he was actually pretty good in that movie but he's but he's he's peppered throughout a lot of 90s movies as well as being well, a, a, worth those actors do a good job of really nailing that that dumb dick demographic totally i mean that's the thing i mean it's a it's an irritating set of characters but they do it well so so yeah anyways that's my that's my favorite (laughs) that's my favorite quote because it's just it just literally makes me laugh every time i I hear it but the actual the best quote of the movie might actually be when quaylen says uh kill a few people they call you a murderer kill a million and you're a conqueror yes and he's he straight bit that quote from 
from history, as far as I know. There was a, a is that a, fa- a historical quote? I've I've not I'm not familiar if it is. Yeah, uh, I should have done the research on this, but that is definitely a quote that can be attributed to a real character, uh, a like a like an actual dictator, as far as I know in history. That makes sense. It does sound like it, but if that's the case, if it's not specific to this movie, then yeah, I'm gonna give it to the X Games bro. Yeah. Well, for me, I had a few. One was when Tucker says, you don't know bad times, man. (laughs) (laughs) That was one. That's a good one, yeah. Quaylen, your friend just had the most expensive funeral in history. That's a good one. That's a good one. Tucker has another one, which I, I'm not reading it, so I might fuck it up. When they kill, when Quaylen finally dies and uh, the treasurer that's tracking them down radios in and he's like, oh, well, you'll find his, you know, you'll find his body about 20,000 feet south of here, whatever the fuck he says. It's a tight quote. And then I had another, it was another Quaylen one. And it was towards the end where he says, Waka, you resilient bastard. That's a good one. He, uh, Lithgow has the best quotes. Uh, he has the best lines in the movie. He truly does. As bad guys often do. They should. You're not a good bad guy if you're not quotable. That's true. And as we just said, with that dictator quote that they had bit from someone else and put in this true. movie got to motivate the other idiot bad guys. Adam, did you spot yourself a dick? The We call this the Dick Miller Award, named after a bit role extraordinaire Dick Miller, who we, um, who we love and cherish. So the, the award is named after him, and it uh, is to point out and spotlight someone in the movie who is doing their best bit role. It did indeed. In fact, I originally had this guy as my spot to dick, but I quickly changed it when I thought about someone who fit this category even better. But I'll touch upon the guy that I originally thought of, which was Zach Grenier. Grenier. And as far as his roles, I'll just say real quickly, he was in Delirious, he's in Tommy Boy, Twister, Fight Club, X-Files, et cetera, et cetera. But I ultimately did not want to land on him. I felt this guy was more suitable for this category and this award, and that would be Paul Winfield. We got double dicks. Got I also picked Paul Winfield. <laughs> literally no other sense. I would have been fucking mad at you if you didn't. This is like the most obvious spot the dick of all time. Absolutely. And yeah, so I'm glad it, it worked out that I was able to have a change of heart and and realized that he was more suitable for this. Yeah, so Paul Winfield, what a fucking, what a, what a dick. What a dude. Wrath of Khan, episodes of TNG, Terminator, Serpent in the Rainbow, Mars Attacks. It literally just goes on and on and on and on. And as the award, uh, in the spirit of the award, he is... In this movie, I, I what what minute log would you put on his screen time? Seven minutes at most. Minutes? 
at most. He's there at the beginning when they're they're rallying all the information and the intel to figure out how. To I get forgot this. that he was even at in that. I, you're right. He's in that yes. scene, and then you literally he doesn't show up until the end when he's in the helicopter, like tracking him down. Yeah. So. There he is, Mr. Paul Winfield. I wanted to say also, as far as his film roster goes, he was in another movie that I have yet to see, but I am very intrigued by. I didn't know that he was in this movie, and, and eventually I'm going to hunt this down and watch it. But he's in a movie called White Dog that is supposed to be super good. And the premise of White Dog is it's about a racist dog. Yeah. And it's not a, it's not supposed to be silly. or It's a very serious thriller dramatic movie that I too have not seen it and have always wanted to see it. Yeah. It looks like it's pretty crazy and a really cool, cool movie. So like it's a fucking criterion movie, right? <laughs> like, so yeah. So finding out that he was in this movie even more compels me to seek that out sooner than later. I'm glad we, we uh, both uh, spotted the same dick. Yeah. It was obvious for this one. It really was. Like I said, I'm glad that I, I switched my 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 choice. I would have been upset. Literally, <laughs> we don't want that. No, it's don't. too early. It's too early in to this to have any sort of <laughs> bit, bitter infighting on the show. Yeah, episode fifteen when I bring up that you didn't pick Paul Winfield for the spot, the big <laughs> <laughs> you motherfucker. I'll hold that against you I'll till the end. Forget. Our next category, Harry Dean Stanton, our other dude. Mm-hmm. Um, who would you replace in this movie with Harry Dean Stanton? My pick was Ranger Frank. We are on. We are just vibing tonight, my <laughs> friend. I have wavelength. Ranger Frank as well. Not only because fuck ralph wait I, I all i looked him up was that he was on the fucking waltons and that's all i needed to know that that dude fucking sucks <laughs> uh, his portrayal of ranger frank i'm not sure if it's meant meant to be inept but yeah harry dean stanton as the helicopter pilot would have added uh some much needed depth to that character and to the rescue team in general i don't buy the rescue team as competent enough this goes back to everybody in this movie is a fucking, a fucking idiot the, the rescue team does just doesn't strike me as competent enough outside of stallone and rooker to a, a, a lesser degree and i would trust them in any sort of emergency situation especially up in the mountains yes so yeah the, fantastic two for two two for fucking two Directorial trifecta category where we try to pinpoint the three best um, back-to-back-to-back uh, projects that this that the director of these movies um, has. I feel like we're we might be going for a three for three here, but you go. This one's this one's tougher. So we're obviously we're talking about Rennie Harlan. Um, in terms of this category and I'm looking at his filmography now to try to see if I was, if I want to change my answer. And the only reason I ever wanted to change it is because deep blue sea has to fucking be on this. Um, 
because Deep Blue Sea, to me, is his peak. I, I think he peaks with Deep Blue Sea. I really do. And I love Deep Blue Sea. And Deep Blue Sea could easily be an, uh, an episode down the road. But I can't do it because I don't know what the long kiss goodnight is. And uh, Driven won um, Golden Raspberry for Worst Director. So I, long story short, I had to go with Die Hard 2 Cliffhanger Cutthroat Island. Oh, really? Wow. So we are not three for not three. three, for three. I, I think given that those are all back to back to back, Die Hard 2, obviously fucking killer. Um, and a great and a great sequel to like a much beloved action movie. I think Die Hard 2 hold, holds its own. Cliffhanger we're obviously talking about on here, so it holds its weight in that uh, regard. Um, and Cutthroat Island, my parents brought me to see it's it's his for Rennie Harlan, it is his biggest bust. It was a fucking huge budget pirate movie that was an abject failure. But I remember as a child fucking loving that movie. My parents it came out in 1995. My parents took me to see it in theaters. Um, and obviously didn't know then that who Rennie Harlan was. But looking back, I think fondly on Cutthroat Island. So those are my three. What are your three? So I got to fudge a little bit here. To this one's hard because he has good stuff, but it's sprinkled with with uh, mistakes. Um, and I tried to make a case, which I hope you do, that Dream uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Four Dream Master is somehow on there. But I just I don't know how to bridge that gap. Did you find a way to? Yeah. So that mine. I'm going to have to amend mine a little bit because one of them I picked more as a joke and purely out of ignorance, which I'll get into. But mine would be A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, Die Hard 2, and and Cliffhanger for the reasons you just spoke of. I guess I omitted it because I was like, well, we're we're talking about the movie, so I'll pick another one. But I put in there as a joke kind of also, uh, I put Adventures of Ford Fairlane not because I've seen this movie. I've never seen it. The only reason why I put it in there is because I've heard across the board that this is one of the worst movies ever made. And then I went and I was researching it and it's actually got a pretty high IMDb rating. So I don't know if it's acquired some sort of cult status, but the adventures of Ford Fairlane was the movie that Andrew Dice Clay started as a detective. Yeah, is it the only movie Andrew Dice Clay is in. <laughs> yeah. They have a, bunch of movies i'm sure he's got to be in other things uh let's look real quick just to for my own for my own edification i'm looking at his filmography now and it he's in a million things yeah he's i figured he had been in other movies he's not this isn't a one-off for him but again historically from what i know the adventures of ford fairline was a fucking bomb on the level that it was it was Career I do want to take that breaking. back a little bit. A million of a, a large majority of these are listed as stand-up specials that he did and weird runs on different TV shows that he had. So it, in terms of actual movies, I would say 95% of these aren't movies. Okay. Well, anyways, so I just wanted to throw that in there. But yeah, I put A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 in there because, and I recently rewatched this, it is definitely by not any means one of the better ones in that series, but it holds up for me. That was the last one that I really remember watching 
when it came out. And in that sense, it has a sentimental stamp on it. And I liked the whole premise of it, that it was, it was just an, another step further in establishing the, this mythos of an actual cast or group of dream experts. So, it, you know, in, in the third one, there was the dream warriors and they retaliate against Freddy Krueger. And this one, they established the dream master who, you know, is someone who has even more harness their power over their dreams and how to combat Freddy. And one thing that I will also attribute to the Nightmare on Elm Street series is with the exception of, of, of one, maybe one of the movies, it's always a female role. So the, the heroine is always a strong female lead that ends up being, you know, the, the, the dream expert or whatever the dream warrior master. So yeah, I put that in there for sure. I think it's I think it's a good movie. I think it it fits well within the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. I love his fucking Nightmare on Elm Street. And I disagree with you a little bit. I think it's one of the best ones. I would put it up there. Um I was going to say maybe top 3, but that Final Nightmare has to be on there and and um uh, or I'm um, not final. New nightmare has to be on there, and the first one has to be on there. So I may not put it three, uh, mainly because um, the one that came right before it is better too. But it is fucking great, and I will. What I will say for it is is that it has the single best. And Nightmare on Elm Street is obviously known for its its it. All of the the death sequences are awesome. The Roach Motel death sequence is my fucking number one favorite death sequence in any freddy movie it is so grotesque it yeah. is so fucking gnarly and mind-bending and great i i love his nightmare on Elm street and i tried my darndest to i just could not connect the dots so i'm glad that you connect that i can connect the dots by proxy that you were just <laughs> willing to go there regardless of the fucking Andrew Dice Clay movie. I, I'm glad you went there because it, it, it is, I think Deep Blue Sea is where Rennie Harlan peaks. But yeah. in terms of pure rewatchability and favorite fucking thing that he's done, it would probably be Dream Master or Cliffhanger, both for drastically different reasons, though. Um, I would pop them in in totally two completely different moods. But... I'm I'm with you. I fucking love his his uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, and I'm glad that they went with him as a director. Uh, seems like a strange choice, but it really is. It's it's kind of one that you wouldn't see coming, and it pays off. He he gets the franchise. He could have come in and made it fucking bonkers and Rennie Harlany, but he understood the franchise and directed it within the confines of what the franchise is asking for. So I, he did an excellent job. Well, um, there's some bonkers moments. There's the pizza scenario. He still what? does his Harlan shit. Yeah. The pizza thing's great. I, just, <laughs> I, this, this one has the best murders. <laughs> has the best sequences. 
We're we're they're they're the meatball souls or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't I forgot that that was also in four. The crying uh, meatballs. Yeah, okay. That I uh, it's skyrocketing quickly up the <laughs> Of the list of Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Maybe we can one pod down the road uh, order our favorite Nightmare on Elm Streets and then do them for uh, Halloween and Friday the 13th eventually. Yes. That would be a a project for a later date. Um, Staying on task with Cliffhanger, though, shall we go down a wiki wormhole here? Man, I'm so excited to do this because there was some real doozy, cool... There's some bonkers shit here. ...facts um, and, that I learned about this. So, yes, let's dive in. I want to start, and I try to make this brief, but it's got so much meat in this uh, fucking bonker sandwich that um, I, I want to take my time, but also make it brief. The story of how this movie came about... Um, and I'm sure you read this as well. Coralco Pictures uh, originally signed Sylvester Stallone up to appear opposite John Candy in a comedy about feuding neighbors called Bartholomew versus Neff. It never even got off the ground. It was going to be directed by John Hughes. The sheer idea of John Hughes directing a Sylvester Stallone movie. I don't even, I am without words. I, I don't know. That's a, that's some bizarro universe. That is some strange. Shit. I, I can't even, and you throw John Candy in there. <laughs> I, I can't even, I don't even know. Um, yeah. So that never happened. But Stallone becomes involved with two more Coralco projects. The first of which is a futuristic sci-fi horror movie called Isobar, which was attached to Ridley Scott at one point. Um, It had a $90 million budget and it was going to feature Stallone opposite uh, Kevin Basinger. Um, for a variety of reasons that also didn't come to fruition, mainly the lack of artistic freedom that Ridley Scott uh, wanted more control of, and they probably should have just let him fucking have. Um, So that doesn't happen. The second Coralco, I guess this would technically be the third Coralco picture that Stallone is involved in is an action disaster thriller called Gale Force described as quote, a diehard in a hurricane. And the reason why this is important is because this is the first time Rennie Harlan is linked with Stallone. Um, That movie also doesn't get made for a variety of reasons. And Harlan actually pockets the $3 million that he was given to direct that movie. But because of that movie, they kind of parlay... Uh, a bunch of the working actors and production crew into making cliffhanger. <laughs> so we go from a Coralco comedy with John Candy uh, directed by John Hughes that is somehow then morphed into a sci-fi horror movie that Ridley Scott would have directed 
that is then morphed into a disaster action movie that's Die Hard in a Hurricane that finally lands on the cliffhanger we know today. (laughs) And I will say this. I would have been stoked to see any of those come to fruition. But I tell you what, that Ridley Scott project in particular, if that would have happened, holy shit. That sounds like that would have fucking ruled. And I didn't even, for the, for the sake of time, I didn't even mention the plot. It's about a genetically altered monster who gets loose on a high-speed runaway train. <laughs> Amazing. That would have been so cool. Sign me up <laughs> so Sign me up yesterday. Please. I want it. I want it now. So what we're saying right now, Ridley Scott, because you're listening to this, is can you go back in time and delete that fucking piece of shit covenant and make this movie? We want Isobar. We <laughs> want Isobar. Yeah. No, the it, public demands it. All two of us want Isobar. <laughs> so that, that is uh, the first piece. Um, the aerial stunt, and I'm sure you know this, you've you read this, was the most expensive aerial stunt in a movie of all time. Uh, and mainly because they paid a dude... million to do this flight-to-flight mid-air plane transfer. Um, Literally, they just gave him a million dollars to do it. And I read, but can't substantiate, that Stallone backed a majority of that money, if not all of it. He gave away a million of of, of his, the money that went to him to make this movie, just to this dude to do this insane stunt which reading more into the stunt, it's two aircraft flying at 15,000 feet without a safety harness. He did it without a fucking safety harness. And if either one of the fucking planes were to not match speed, he would literally just be ripped out of the fucking air. (laughs) Like if one plane just dipped in speed just a little bit or went a little bit faster than the other one, he would be eviscerated. Not to mention, without a safety harness, if just a giant gust of wind, which you're 15,000 feet in the air, were to just, I don't know, present itself, he would have also died. So <laughs> I don't know how Randy Harlan didn't kill more people making this. Hats off to that guy that did that, too. Holy shit, the, the size of your fucking testicles that you have to possess. That is, that's some insanity. (laughs) If you you want to go further down a little wormhole, I looked up the 12 most, well, I looked up the most expensive movie stunts of all time. And I found a list of the 12 most expensive. (laughs) Yeah. Let's do it. Cliffhanger is number four, or I'm sorry. Cliffhanger is number five on the list. Uh, it's the most expensive aerial stunt ever performed, but it's okay. not the expen- most expensive stunt. So we'll just do the top five. Five is cliffhanger. Four, Iron Man 3, the Air Force One rescue scene. I've never seen Iron Man 3. I don't watch any Marvel movies. I don't know what this is. Um, three 
Inception, the Christopher Nolan movie, obviously, the hallway dream fight apparently cost a fucking buttload of, of money for whatever reason, probably because he's a nut job that needs, uh, that does take after take after take after take, I'm sure it just took a million takes and logistically was a nightmare. Um, two, the freeway chase in Matrix Reloaded, <laughs> I guess that is, it's a two and a half million dollar stretch of highway that was specifically built for the movie, which is nutter butter. <laughs> Number one is not even in the last 60 years. It's Ben-Hur, the fucking chariot race in Ben-Hur. Uh, it required over a thousand extra, a thousand workers just to carve out this arena in an Italian rock quarry <laughs> specifically for the chariot race. It had 15,000 extras, not to mention 78, like specially bred horses, 18 chariots. And it cost over four fucking million dollars. <laughs> I had no idea about that. That's crazy. So that's, Top five most expensive stunts. I really went down a wormhole once I read about the aerial stunt. Yeah. Um, here are just some quick blast facts about, about Cliffhanger. Stallone is afraid of heights. Um, he actually took this role specifically so he could confront his fear of heights. Uh, we mentioned this earlier, but this is set in the Colorado Rockies, but it's filmed um, in Italy. Uh, Stallone paid uh, more money out of pocket, paid $100,000 out of pocket so they could reshoot the rabbit hunting sequence, um, specifically because test audiences were, had a severe negative reaction when the rabbit gets killed. Um, also, this is a fun recast. Christopher Walken was originally supposed to play Quaylen. Not only that, director Rennie Harlan, his first choice was David Bowie. Right. <laughs> and even more to add on to that, Brian Ferry of Roxy Music also considered. So we have these two legendary glam rock front people are both initially considered to be the villain. And then it ultimately goes possibly Walken and then Walken couldn't do it for whatever reason. Lithgow because Walken um, dropped out like in pre-production. He'd be walking out of that movie. He'd be walking out. (laughs) He'd be Christopher walking out hard. Yeah. Um, The only other real, real piece that I could find. Well, two more pieces. The Stallone and Janice Turner who played uh, the, the, co-female role janine janine i'm sorry janine turner they uh refused the the bat the sequence with the bats those that all featured live bats but both actors refused to work um with live bats so they had to remove them and digitally add them in post-production which is actually kind of crazy because it's pretty flawless you don't even really notice that yeah Um, look it looks real looks like there was a thousand bats the establishing shot of the bats is all you need. Um, and the only other thing is, I guess, 
uh, a develop a sequel was in development called Cliffhanger Two: The Dam, and it would have pitted Stallone's character against a group of terrorists that took over the Hoover Dam. Sign me the fuck up for that. That sounds awesome. So good. What other wormholes did you go down? You hit on most of them. So there was a couple others that I thought were pretty cool. The one was in reference to the money that was used. Uh, the Denver Mint, who in the movie were the producers of the stolen cash that the, the villains end up getting, it only produces coins. So $100 million in coins would have weighed 2,500 tons. So completely, absolutely 100% impractical to do any sort of heist on this, you know, of that convoluted heist of that nature. I'm still curious what 100 million in thousand dollar bills, which is what it was, would have been in terms of weight. It still probably would have been fucking for three suitcases. A lot. Uh, too much yeah that if we wanted to backtrack a little bit to going back to any plot holes because they questionable yeah yeah, they they because they they end up reeling those suitcases on that line between the planes and it holds up that would have snapped yeah so that's that's one thing let's see what else this is kind of cool i guess in the credits i didn't notice it, it included a message to explain that the harness in the opening scene was modified to fail they didn't want the producers of those harnesses to to get any sort of negative pr for establishing you know in that opening sequence that they were pieces of shit and people would die using that's interesting yeah Yeah. i like that and then finally for me just uh, because i i like to keep track in some sort of methodical way I want to develop this more as we go along, hopefully, what kind of violence is being enacted in these movies. But body count, 17 people. Oh, nice. We should do a body count. We should just add a fucking body count category because it would just be body count, this number. And then then cue body count, the band playing. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, well... We just added another category, which is the opposite of what we need. I kind of, um, I kind of tried to get into that last time with I had the gore factor thing. You know, it was pretty nebulous at that point. But yes, maybe that's something we can drop in from here on out. A body count is great. Seventeen, good. It's that seems about right. I would have put it right about there. So then, our main question: Why we're here? Let's rate this bad boy. Uh, you go first. I will say going into this movie, feeling somewhat skeptical as to how I feel about it again. I, this is a midnight movie. I actually really enjoyed this movie. I, I loved watching it. It was super fun. There's plenty of violence and there's plenty of absurdity going on that for me, it fits the criteria. I didn't think it would. I thought, it would be more like how I felt about Running Man, where I'd be like, eh, you know, like, it's cool. But, like, as far as, like, it being a, a movie that you need to push later into the evening to to watch under whatever sort of, like, circumstances, I felt like this, this, this met that criteria. Because, again, there's enough bananas shit going on in it. I gave it a... a- 
if you're giving it a midnight rating, I give it about 11.30 p.m. Because I think it is... I think it is a midnight movie in its unedited form, but I think it's very easily un. I think it's very easily edited because I feel like this fucking movie was on USA all the time when I was a kid. Yeah, and you just don't get it in its glorious form. In its unedited glorious form, it is a midnight movie. But I gave it an eleven thirty p.m. <laughs> ranking just because I feel like you could you could easily edit this without ruining. Uh, the plot of the movie and and air it earlier um i'll say i'm with you on that because i think actually when i was considering my rating i i did flirt with the uh the the possibility that it was 11 30 so let's just say we're on the same page with that 11 30 in terms of whether or not it's a midnight movie yeah i came up with out of five carabiners (laughs) (laughs) how many how many out of five carabiners would you give this four four out of five carabiners yeah i went with three and a half three and a half i hate that i said this in the halloween three episode i hate the half rating i think it's a cop-out but i (laughs) I couldn't give it a full four um That's, that's two movies in a row that we've basically said the same thing three and a half out of four on a rating scale Three and a half, four ish out of five. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I meant. Sorry. Three and a half, four out of five. Yeah. Excuse me. I think I would just like to close with this thought before we, uh, you announce what we're doing next. Um, I, and I'm sure you saw this in your research. I was at first uh, upset to hear that a, uh, a remake had been. Um, pitched and it seems like it is in the works currently Um, but then the more I delved into it I am fucking stoked it's going to be a female fronted cliffhanger reboot directed by Anna Lily Amapur who did this little indie movie that I'm not sure if you saw the the, a girl walks home a a girl walks home alone at night Um, She's an Iranian female director, and this movie is fucking just bonkers. It's described as an Iranian vampire spaghetti western, and it fucking slays. And I, she is a, a fucking killer, not just male-female director. She's a killer director, but I'm stoked at the idea of these remakes just – of us remaking these uh, highly testosterone-filled movies and giving it a full female fronted cast and giving it to prominent female directors. I think it's going to be dope. I'm super looking forward to it. And it is a perfect way to end this in just kind of talking about that. Yeah. I am aware of that movie they're talking about. It's been on my radar and I know that it's something that would definitely be of of interest to me. You would love it. It is. It's really good. I had no idea that she had anything to do with a cliffhanger reboot. So that's sick. Yeah. She is signed on. She's the going to be the director and it was her idea to make it a female fronted, uh, uh, cast. So hell, hell yeah, that's I'm rad. Not sure when that comes out, but I'm so fucking stoked. That yeah. would be so good. What is up on the docket for next week? 
I'm going to go right down the list that I had, had initially sent to you when we talked about this. Might as well stick with it. Manhunter. Michael oh. Mann. Michael Mann's murder thriller, serial killer thriller based off of Thomas Harris's book, Red Dragon. One of my favorite books of all time. Also one of my favorite movies of all time. Fuck yes. We need to make a pact now to not talk about Red Dragon as much as I feel like it's easy to compare those two movies. Yeah. But we need to keep it Michael Mann specific and Manhunter specific because there's so much to delve into with Manhunter and I fucking love Manhunter that inevitably we're going to talk about Red Dragon and compare and compare the two. Yeah. But for me, there's no fucking comparison. Manhunter is the end all be all between those two. Um, and I love Red Dragon, but Manhunter is Italian fingers, <laughs> kissy sound. Perfect. I fucking love Manhunter. That I'm so hyped. This is going to be a good one for sure. Real good. And so, I think Michael Mann in general is just a super interesting director that does these like neo-noir, uh, uh, beautifully conceived move uh, the concepts I, I it'll be great yeah so there you go look forward to that manhunter next time well this has been another deep dive into midnight movie madness thanks to charlotte blythe for providing our intro music our outro music is brought to you by glowing brain if you're a band looking to submit a song a listener looking to submit a question feel free to shoot us an email at midnightflicks f-l-i-x pod at gmail.com or hit us up on instagram at midnightflixpod again f-l-i-x for adam walker i am patrick mitchell see you on the other side <laughs>